right. Hello, everyone. Sorry. Uh, welcome to the Advent series. Um, as Terry said, you won't hear him again. You're stuck with me for the remainder of the year that you get a week break uh, for the children's event. Um, it's a, I'll admit I stole the structure for this series from Christmas cards. Um, our fridge is adorned with cards, uh, which I love. It's always nice to be reminded of friends and family when you get milk. And what I've noticed is though I love the pictures and the cards, the, um, the phrasing leaves isn't the most creative. Uh, it doesn't differ that much from card to card. This isn't a criticism of Bush Christmas card, just to be clear, though we took them all down today. Um, but basically, like 90% plus of the cards are either Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, or some combination of four words. Does anyone want to guess the four words? No, no. Joy. That's number one. Peace. Hope. And love. Those are the four. Yep. You've all read Christmas cards. Um, I'm glad that was my impression. I actually went on one of the card things and scrolled to about four pages of cards trying to see if I had just had a wrong impression from your cards, but that actually is the general. Um, those words are words that we generally think about when we think about Christmas. So what I wanted to do was take a week, uh, week and look at each of those words. We're going to skip love since we're also skipping one of the four weeks, um, but that's okay because we cover love a lot throughout the rest of the year. So I think we focus on the ones that are more specifically associated with Christmas. And we're going to do them in reverse order of popularity. So joy is last, peace will be next week, and we're doing hope this week. So that's what we're doing for this series. Um, it's worth noting this is not a Christmas series. This is an Advent series. Um, contrary to what I thought for most of my life, Advent is not a fancy word for Christmas, um, nor is it the fancy word for the Christmas season. It uh, means, uh, well, it gets its root from to come. Uh, it's a Latin base. Uh, it's basically speaking of an arrival. We use the word semi-commonly in our language when we talk about something important coming, like the advent of a new technology, or when a sports team signs a new star and they talk about the advent of a new era for that team. It's the coming, the arrival of something notable. Um, and with Christmas, it's the coming and arrival of Jesus that we are remembering. Um, but again, as that is also what we remember in Christmas, it's Advent is a different season. Advent is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. Christmas, or Christmas tide in the traditional calendar, is the 12 days following. Those are the 12 days of Christmas. Confused, Brian always was trying to figure out what was special around December 14th that we started counting 12 days from there. It wasn't those 12, it's the 12 days after Christmas, which culminate in the 12th night before Epiphany, which is where Shakespeare's play gets its name. So that's the different seasons. And it's not, but it's not simply a difference of timing. Though they both are relating to the same thing, there's a difference in tone between Advent and Christmas. One precedes Christmas, the other one follows after it. One is more focused on the looking forward to Jesus' coming, the other one is a celebration of his coming. Um, one, the tone is different. Um, if you pick up the hymnals, the songs we normally associate with Christmas are Christmas songs traditionally sung from December 25th through the 6th. Um, the only song that shows up in these hymnals uh, that we would associate with Christmas is, I think, Joy to the World. And it's the very last song kind of marking the switch into Christmas time. Um, other than that, it's songs like, O Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, or uh, my favorite is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
Um, they're songs that often have a slightly haunting um, tone to them. They're, they have an almost mournful waiting to them. And that is, to some extent, the difference in the tone between the two seasons. Advent is a reflection on the longing need for Jesus. Christmas is the celebration that he's come. Um, Christmas is more triumphant, Advent more reflective. Advent is the fast to Christmas's feast. It's the preparation for what is to come. Um, if I had my way, and my wife knows this, um, I would wholeheartedly lean into celebrating Advent for the entire period prior to Christmas and then celebrate Christmas from the 25th on. Um, spend this entire period focused on preparing for a season and then just blow the doors off of 12 days of celebrating after Christmas. Um, we lose something symbolically in the way that we celebrate the season currently. Um, if you think about the timing of how this all flows through, Christmas season essentially, I mean, you start seeing Christmas decorations in stores October in October um, for me now to get my angry man yells at cloud rant going. Um, but you see the celebrations there and the season is in full swing by Black Friday. Um, and it is a season of anxiety and preparation and small celebrations that culminate in Christmas morning when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus and then it's over. So basically we spend the entire time building up to the thing we're supposed to celebrate and then we put the tree away and we move on with the year. So it's turned Christmas is more the end of things than it is a beginning. It is the end of the year. We don't associate Christmas with the beginning of a year. We associate it with the end of the year. We associate it with the end of a season as opposed to the beginning of something. Where Christmas is supposed to be, it's about a birth. It's about something bursting forth and bringing new life and new hope, to tie in the sermon series, into where we're going. And the way we celebrate is completely flips that. Um, so I will step off my hobby horse because I don't expect the entire culture to shift for me. Um, but it'd be nice. But this is meant to be an Advent series. Um, Christmas is an answer. And an answer is only helpful if you're aware of what, of the question that's being answered. I could have the answer to the thing that most plagues me in life being shouted by a homeless person as I walk down the street, but if my mind isn't aware that's a question, it's going to do me no good. Similarly, if we arrive on Christmas morning to celebrate the birth of Jesus and we have put no thought into the fact that we needed him to be born, we can shoot past it without hearing the answer that Christmas gives to a longing in our hearts. So regardless of how good this sermon series goes, <laughs> um, I would ask that you take time over this next stretch to reflect upon the need we have for Jesus. The need we have as a collective humanity, the need this earth has for him, the need that each one of us has in our relationships and in ourself for Jesus to have come and Jesus to come in the future to bring all things to wholeness. So that's Advent versus Christmas, and this is an Advent series. So we're going to look at these words with an emphasis on the longing and the need for fulfilling them. How Jesus is we needed him to come and how we need him to come again to see the fullness of what these words imply. And then, because Advent starts the church's calendar, and we are also looking forward to the day we 
get to change dates. I'm going to try and end these each with a practical thing we can apply in the coming year. Um, there are three practical things. I think if you did all three of them throughout the year for 20 minutes a week, 30, um, it would benefit you greatly. So I'll just put that out there, but that's going to be the structure. It's going to be a look at this word with an emphasis on the longing question that Christmas answers around it, and then something practical we can apply in the year to come. So first, hope. Uh, we all know what hope means. Uh, it's a desiring of something we expect, or an expected desiring. Um, the Greek word for it is elpis, um, which sounds a lot like Elvis, which is how I remember it when I'm studying Greek. Uh, it's used consistently there, and it's also the word that gets used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's consistently that word. Um, when you hope for something, it's beyond something that you desire. Uh, it's something that also hasn't arrived yet. If the thing you desire has arrived, you aren't hoping for it anymore, it's there. Um, as Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And it's not because the thing ceases being good, it's because it ceases being something hoped for because it's arrived. The thing that varies when we hope is the certainty of its arriving. Um, the Greek thought at the time viewed hope as a fantasy escape. It is looking to what you wish would be so you can in some way be relieved of some of the drudgery of now. And it was looked upon with some suspectness because it left you exposed to the realities of the day. Um, the Jewish thought was different uh, it placed a greater confidence in the thing that was being hoped for because it looked to the thing that supported the hope. So most of the times you see a reference to hope in the Old Testament, it's referring to a hope that's grounded in God, and there's an expectation of a certainty with that hope. It's not a, I really hope God delivers us. It is a hope that expects that God will deliver us. And the New Testament writers pick up that thought. They're, they're in a Greek culture, but they're drawing on the Jewish use of the word. So usually when you see hope in the New Testament, it has the sense of being a certain hope. It's a hope that is expected to come for sure. We tend closer to Greek thought in our usage of the word. Uh, I, got an, I get emails daily um, giving advice for business. And one of the advice that came a few weeks back was not to use hope in an email when you're saying you will get something to somebody in the future. So if somebody asks you for files next Tuesday, don't say, I hope to get them to you by Tuesday because it gives, it takes away confidence in you because it makes it sound like stars align, everything works out, you'll get the file. I have no actual confidence in myself to get it to you. Say, I'll likely get them to you by that, or I should get them to you. Don't say hope, because we view hope as a suspect thing. We also have a sense of it's a desire, but we don't have a grounding that it will come to be. If we want to indicate certainty, we don't use the word hope. We say, if I want, think you'll get a job, I say, I think you'll get a job. Or I'm sure you'll get it. I don't say, I hope you'll get the job, even though desire is there in both cases. So we know what it is to hope for something. We live, our days are filled with hope. Uh, we hope for, when we're single, we hope for a spouse often. Uh, if we're in a job that we don't like, we hope for a new job. 
We hope for a child before we have children. We hope for healing when someone's sick. We hope that the next year will bring changes from the crap that's been in this year. We know what it is to have consistent hope for something better to come in our lives. We also know what it is to consistently have our hopes dashed. Um, I mean, you can take marriage. The expectation when you stand across the altar from the person of what this marriage life will be will be underperformed. Um, there is a certain, you know this person is human who stands across from you and they have failings and those failings will bite you at some point. But you don't feel it when you're standing there. All you feel is the hope of a fantastic life together. Or you have the hope for a child and then the child arrives and it brings both hours of sleep with it. And you get the crushing reality of what it is to have a child. that we love so, so much. We also know what it is to have hopes deferred. Was it? Yeah, it's easy, just easy. I got two hours of sleep Friday night. Um, we also know what it is simply to have hopes deferred because sometimes it's that we don't get the spouse who disappoints, you just simply wait and the spouse doesn't come. Or you don't get the job that turns out to be a job, you just consistently are looking for work. Um, Proverbs says hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's a bitterness that grows as we continuously have hopes for things that fall short. Either fall short in what they're supposed to be or fall short in ever actually materializing. And we live with that on a consistent basis because we have desires for what we want in this world and this world consistently underperforms our desires. There seem to be two ways that we approach those desires. Um, there's what seems to be the Danish way, which is to lower your expectations and just be happy with whatever occurs. And then there is the, <laughs> what is very much the American way, which is just to shift your fantasies constantly to something else in the hopes and the assurance that at some point everything will pay off. So the Danish way would be to, danger they are this way, they actually have shown they have the lowest expectations in Europe and they're thus the happiest. Um, but you say you're married and your spouse isn't the embodiment of all perfection and joy for you. They're just another human that you happen to be living life with. So you lower your expectations. And you can, but the problem is you can slowly drift into being roommates in that one. The other option is you start fantasizing about other wives and detach in that way. Both of these ways are a sickness, Danish and American variations, of a response to hope being consistently deferred. Now the challenge as Christians is we are meant to be a people defined by hope. The New Testament, the Gospels, funny, oddly, have very little occurrences of the word hope. It only occurs three times in the Gospels. Because at that point, hope is being fulfilled. But when Jesus ascends, hope just shows up in the New Testament in high volume. All the letters have this reference to a hope. And even when the word is not used, there is an expectation for a future that shapes how we're meant to live. And it is supposed to be a sure expectation. So we have the challenge of being people who are supposed to be defined by this hope. Defined by a hope in a way that we are not disappointed in it, that we have consistent high expectations, and yet we live in a world that seems designed to crush us 
and our expectations and hopes. So how do we balance that? And how do we approach Christmas, which is a season of hope? It's not an accident that it ends up on our cards. Any more than it's an accident that I think that when you look at which of the major Christian holidays got secularized successfully, you don't get a very secular celebration of Easter. Because if you strip the theological import away from Easter, you have a guy being murdered. And that's it. If you strip away all of the theological implications of Christmas, you still have the story of this poor couple giving birth to a child under rough circumstances with all the potential and joy that comes with a new child being born and then gifts being given to this child. Christmas, we know Easter has hope in it, but the hope that's present in Christmas is there is a supernatural hope in the fact that the son of God has come, but there's just a very natural hope in the fact that a birth has happened. And all the potential that comes with the new human is now here. So East, Christmas is very naturally a season of hope. Again, in a world that is consistently dashing our hopes. Now the temptation is to, again, lower expectations, or to run to Christmas with a sentimentality. To run to it with a detachment from the world. It becomes a refuge where we escape a world that crushes our hopes for at least like four warm hours when it's all just gifts are being given and the kids are still happy and not strangling each other yet and life hasn't started. But then the tree gets put away, the last present has been opened, you might get to stretch the day through a nice dinner, but then you go back to work on Monday it's cold and dark out because we're in the middle of winter and the hope-crushing realities of this world start to attack us again. We need some means of taking Christmas beyond the 25th. And I don't, don't just mean the 12 days that I want to harp on. I mean actually into the full year. We need to live as a people shaped by the hope that we see at Christmas. And that's where I think Advent is helpful for us. Because in Advent, we can reflect on the coming of Jesus in three ways. And there are three ways that give a shape and a trajectory that gets Jesus out of the manger and into our lives as we walk through this, this world. The first we reflect is we can reflect on the first coming of Jesus. We need to remember that when Jesus was born, it was not some sudden, unexpected event that no one saw coming. It was the end of millennia of promises. You can go all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. God's come and declared the results of that rebellion. And then he turns his attention to the serpent that tempted them. The one who has come to corrupt humanity and so far being extremely successful at it. And he proclaims to that serpent that one day a seed will come from this woman that will crush your head. One will come from the woman that crushes the head of Satan. That is given right after the fall. Now Eve did not give birth to that child. The only skull that was crushed by one of her children was his brother. So 
We've gone bad, and the story is, as rather than those birds crushing the head of the serpent, they followed the serpent's path. So we sit in hopeful expectation. Similar to the New Testament, the Old Testament doesn't have the word hope in it at the beginning. It doesn't show up in the first five books. It doesn't actually show up in Joshua. The first time it makes a show up, shows up is Judges when things are really going bad. The, but God is at work in this first section. He's making covenants and he's delivering people. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Isaac. He makes a covenant with Jacob. He takes the Israelites into Egypt where they grow into a nation. Then when they're oppressed by slavery and being killed, he comes and he delivers them and brings them out. He meets with them at the mountain. He gives them the law. He comes to dwell in their midst. He is making covenants and fulfilling and delivering them and coming to dwell with them. It isn't until he takes them into the land that all of a sudden hope starts showing up again. Because all of a sudden you realize they still need something. They have been taken. In some sense, the promises given to Abraham have been fulfilled. He has grown into a nation. That nation has a land. It rules over itself and it has God with it. And they still consistently are falling short. They are making a consistent mess of what they're supposed to be as an emblem of who God is in this land. They come into the land of promise and they see there's still something missing. So hope starts showing up. They have to hope in God because they need something beyond what they already have. They thought they got what they needed and they still need more. They need a greater prophet. They need a greater king. They need that branch of Jesse to rise up. They are meant to be people who hope in God for all that they, are, that they need. When the Assyrians are at the gates, the question is, what do they hope in for their deliverance? And God does not expect them to hope blindly. He doesn't just show up and shout loudly, I am God, hope in me. He points back to what he's done. He is the one who has already routed the Egyptians to rescue these people so they can hope in him, hope in him for the Assyrians. So these are people who are supposed to look at a God who has been faithful and trust that he will continue to be faithful and give them what they need. And that is supposed to shape how they live. But instead, we see a consistent pattern of they hope in false gods, foreign gods. They hope in foreign armies, and they hope in their own cunning. And they hope in just what they can get in this age because there isn't anything else. And this, these hopes, this is not the hoping of faithfulness. This is the hoping of rebellion. And that is what they walk in. And they walk in it consistently for centuries until God removes them from the land again. As with rebellion, they were driven east out of Egypt, Eden. So again, with rebellion in the land, they're taken east into the land of Babylon further east, where they dwell in captivity and exile. But even there, hope exists. The prophet of that time was Jeremiah. And this is in the 31st chapter of the book. It bears his name. He says to the people who are in exile, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping, 
Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is a people who's been taken by a military power that comes with all that happens when a military power comes into your land and takes you captive and destroys your city. And they've been dragged out, those who survive, into exile. But he goes on, and that's why there's weeping. But he goes on and says, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So these are people who are weeping because they truly have been driven by the land. The fruit of their rebellion has come full. They've been taken prisoner. But God says through Jeremiah, stop weeping. There's hope for you. You will be taken from the land of the enemy. Your children, you have a future. Your children will come home. And they do return. God's faithful. 70 years in exile, and they come back to the land. But they come back again to less than they were looking for. They come back, and the temple is rebuilt, but it's not what it was. They come back and they dwell on the land that they once possessed, but they dwell as people under foreign rule. So still, they have to wait in hope. Because if they are going to get what they need, we now have centuries of evidence that they need something else, that they need God to move in a different way. They need this person, this Messiah, to arrive who is the hope of Israel. And that's who Jesus is. He is the hope of Israel. He's born as the fulfillment of these promises, and the gospel writers make that painfully explicit. Um, just to give two quick examples, when in, from Jesus' birth time, when the Magi arrive from the east and they're looking for where this new king was born, they can consult the prophecies and say he's born in the town of Bethlehem because there was a prophecy that out of that city is where the Messiah would be born. And then when Herod isn't, doesn't manage to find out where they, he is from these guys, he just goes, to, he sends people to the town of Bethlehem and kills everybody under the age of two just to be safe. Matthew quotes that same passage from Jeremiah. He quotes the first part of it. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to become her children because they are no more. Again, death has come, but something's different. The Messiah has been born. He's going back to Egypt to retrace the path of Israel. And this time, the future will hold. This time, the people really will be taken from the enemy's land in a thorough way. So we come at Advent to reflect on the, the length of this story, the breadth and the history that goes into it. We step in with the Israelites and we, see, we, we empathetically appreciate the longing they had for the Messiah that was to come. We live on the other side of Jesus' birth, so we have to do this by imagination. But we come and we step and we experience with them what it is to live without Jesus, to look forward to Jesus, to simply trust and hope in the promises of what he will be. 
again, to make that question in our hearts so painfully clear that when we hear the announcement of his birth on Christmas morning, we celebrate because the question has been answered. We see that our hope is meant to be, we look at them, we see that our hope is meant to be grounded in what God has done. They weren't supposed to just blindly hope for the Messiah. They saw God being faithful again and again so they could trust that when he said this person was coming, he would. And we can see that the life of faithfulness is one that is shaped by that hope and not continuous false hopes. That it's based in a hope and a trust and a certainty that God will be true to his word and that shapes our conduct. That's why I like the mournful songs of um, Advent, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a sad song, but as I think back, uh, Rose noted, that sad songs are beautiful. Um, there's a beauty to it because there's a certainty in its sadness. It's a song of lament that still expects the coming Messiah. It recognizes the pain of where we are, but knows that the answer to that pain is coming or has come from where we stand but also is coming again. Because that's the other, the second coming that we reflect on as we, during this Advent season. Yes, Jesus has come, but he also will come again. Jesus' birth wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough just to have a child born in a manger. That didn't fix everything. He actually had to leave the manger and go live the life that he lived. And at first glance, at the beginning, it looked like it was successfully doing what was anticipated. He begins his public ministry proclaiming the kingdom is near to repent and believe. And he starts to draw a crowd. He's casting out demons. He is healing people. Uh, He's teaching with authority. And he's gathering the people you expect. And then he gets a group, a 12, these disciples who he is bringing close to him to build the band you expect to change the situation here. But then as quickly as it starts to build to where it's supposed to be, it seems to fizzle. The crowds find his teachings hard. He makes enemies of the religious leaders. Eventually, one of his 12 betrays him, and then the other 11 desert him as he's taken prisoner and then put to death. <coughs> and we see the pain of this on the road to Emmaus. Um, there, Jesus is risen, and he's appearing to two disciples who, though they'd heard an inkling of this, they didn't, they hadn't seen him yet. Well, they had at that moment, but they didn't realize it. And they're explaining what's happened and their reason for their sorrow. And they, ref- they give the answer that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We see again a hope dashed. This is one of the only three occurrences of hope in the Gospels. It's the hope that was dashed by Jesus' death. The expectation that Israel, who was in such need of redemption, had finally found it, and then he was killed. But we know, as he's standing there talking to him, that though he was killed, that wasn't the end of the story. He had come and lived the sinless life, And then he was put to death as an innocent man, but death couldn't hold him. And in his death, though he was condemned as an innocent man, he condemned death and sin and Satan. 
Then in his resurrection, we are joined with him and we are raised free from this. So the hope still lives and then he departs again. He sticks around for 40 days teaching, probably making sense of a lot of the stuff that has happened prior to that. And then he ascends into the clouds. They're still right before he ascends. They ask him, are you going to come and finally do what you're supposed to do? And he leaves. And one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is they're basically just staring at the clouds. And like two angels walk up and are like, what's what you looking at? And they say that he will return the way that he has. And now for centuries, we have hoped for that return. Like the Israelites prior to Jesus' birth, we sit in an age of longing for Jesus' coming. We sit in an age that is meant to be shaped by that coming. As I said, three occurrences of hope in the Gospels. One is the one I referenced there. Another one is to point to the hope in Moses. And a third is just a um, quoting of a scripture from Isaiah. Doesn't occur. But once the epistles to the church, once you start talking to the church era, Hope is all over the place because they are meant to be a people who live their lives with an eye towards the horizon, waiting for Jesus' return. I'm so far off my notes. There you go. And like the Israelites, it is a hope that's meant to be grounded. They don't aimlessly or just wishful thinking hope that Jesus will return. They have seen what he has done and they've heard from him who did it that he will return, so they wait for that. And we are meant to live that way too. Reflecting on Advent and the fact that we are waiting for his second coming makes sense of some of the broken promises we have now. That sense of the hope looks like it's going to be fulfilled, but it seems to still fall short in so many places. That life just isn't here yet what we know it should be. Because we still, our hope, like the people in the promised land, like the people who've returned from exile, who are in some sense where they're supposed to be, still are looking towards the future for the fulfillment of that hope. We have something, but we still are looking in expectation for the fullness of it to come. Jesus' victory was full, but the consummation of it still is coming. Satan, sin, and death have been defeated. They will be removed. And the third way that we remember that Jesus has come in Advent, because we need something, It's not enough just to simply sit and hope. Well, I mean, I guess it could be, but we have so much more than that because we weren't left alone to hope. The third way that we can reflect on Jesus coming to us is we can reflect on the fact that his spirit has come to each one of us, that we have a Holy Spirit, his, his, a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And this spirit grounds our hope in two ways. The spirit is referred to as a down payment. It's an insurance that we have what has been promised. We have a portion of the future kingdom already dwelling within us. 
that says, it's like a ticket stub, says you can cash this in. You have the fullness in the age to come. So we don't just wait with a written promise. We wait with a promise that dwells within our heart, consistently reminding us that yes, your hope will not be dashed, ultimately. That when the trumpet sounds and he descends, you can stand confidently knowing him because you have already a part of him dwelling within you. It also grounds our hope because it is a portion of that kingdom already present. We do look to the future. We know that we will not see the fullness of all of our hopes, all of our desires, all that we're looking for fulfilled in this age. And you will make a mess of your life if you try and live in a way that expects that. But we can expect portions of that future kingdom to break into our lives on a regular basis because the Spirit of God dwells within us. We don't simply look at a sick person and say, well, they're sick in this age, they can be healed in the one to come, but we believe in a God who through that Spirit he can heal a person. We don't just look at our lives and we see the places where we are marred by sin and we see this the anger at our children or some other sin where we want it to go away and we think we've made great progress and then last Sunday happens and you're fighting the urge to not kill your child. But we can still hope with expectation that progress is being made, that the sin within us is not simply waiting to be completely eradicated in the age to come, but it is being put to death right now. We can expect relationships to be made whole. We can look at a marriage and not simply go, it's two people who are touched by sin, so it's always going to have lots of mess, but we can expect it to consistently get better. We can expect people to change. We can approach evangelism expecting that God can break through in any person's life. And this is a hope I consistently need to be reminded of, even though I should be able to look back at what God has done and go, okay, you can do that again. I wasn't looking for God when he found me. I don't know how to phrase that. I was doing the opposite, and he came and made me his. He can do that in someone else's life too, no matter how far they seem from my, my estimation of it. We see all of this tied together to some degree in Paul's letter to the Romans. I want to close by reading that, the whole thing. Now, starting in chapter 5, and verse uh, 2. Through him we have obtained, also obtained access, and that's through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When I said we're meant to be a people defined by hope, it is to such a degree that we can rejoice in sufferings because the end result is hope. That's how important it is for us to be a people shaped by hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And why does it not put us to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Our hope will not put us to shame because we already have evidence of God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And now we look back. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, God reconcil- we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We look back and we know that the reason we have this spirit poured out into our hearts is because we have, through Christ's death, been brought into Christ. He dwells within us. While we were enemies, God made that so. Now that he has made us no longer his enemies and called us his children, how much more is he going to see through the promises that he's made? How much more of an assurance do we have for that hope? So we see there the spirit dwelling within us. And we see this reflection on what's happened in the past for assurance for what can come in the future. And then jumping to chapter 8. Starting in verse 12. Thank you, Taylor. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have a Spirit within us that can bring forth transformation into our lives, can bring the life of that kingdom in the future into our present reality in extensive measure. For all who are led by the spirits of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And again, we see an heir is someone who looks forward. An heir is someone who has an inheritance coming to them. And we know that we are heirs of God because the Spirit of God has been put within us. And again, that hope, that assurance of there, gives us grounds by which we can suffer. And then in closing, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here we see that forward-looking hope shaping how we live. The glory that will be revealed to us shapes how we view all the sufferings we have right now. The opposite of hope is anxiety. When you're not hoping, you're anxious about what happens because you're anxious about the sufferings that are going to come. But when you are shaped by hope, the anxieties fall under that covering. The strains and stresses of this life, the fact that things will go badly for us in this age, fall under that hope. They are given context by that hope. And in light of that hope of the glory that is to become, all the stuff that's going to go bad, all the stuff that we, we experience on a regular basis, it's not worth comparing to the hope that we have at his second coming.
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first, fruit, first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have that down payment, the first fruits of the Spirit. So we groan, we sit in anticipation for what is to come. That's what we can prepare ourselves for during this Advent season. We can recognize the imperfections of the life we have now such that we would long even more for the life that is to come. That is not to make us ineffective now. A person shaped by a hope for the future, truly shaped by what can come and by the fact that the Spirit dwells within them to bring about change now, a person shaped by that hope can trust in God and walk in the ways he is and bring about the change he wants to see in this world, can love their neighbors as themselves. Because even if it costs me, so what? I have an inheritance. Can say no to sin. Because even if I miss out here, I have an inheritance. Can deal with the pains of this life because they are fleeting compared to an eternal inheritance. And we have to do this in hope. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. And that's where we find ourselves here in Advent. We recognize that we are in a time of waiting. It's not a passive waiting. We don't just go climb and sit on a pillar waiting for the trumpet to sound. But we have a life that's shaped by waiting because we recognize where our future is. We live by faith. Christmas is a celebration of that hope because our hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Our hope has a birthday. The same air that was pierced by my son's cries eight months ago, today actually, was pierced by Jesus' cries two millennia ago. He rolled over in real hay. He giggled like a child does. He is as real a person as any one of us is. He can become a story, but we remember there was a time when a child was born who smelt like a child. And we know that our hope came then and that he will come again. And in that hope, we can have confidence. So as we look towards Christmas, reflect on that hope in these weeks to come. Reflect on that period prior to Jesus' coming. Remember what it must have been like to live always short of seeing what, was, what God seemed to say was coming, always looking for this person who was going to come to redeem you. And then recognize that we wait in a similar spot and look with anticipation to the day when Jesus will come. 
And then while we do that, know the Spirit has come into our hearts and He is there on a daily basis able to bring some of that kingdom forward. That's hope. As I said, there'd be something practical. Um, This one might strike people as silly, um, but it has been a practice that I am kept up for, geez, 15 years now. It's, a, it's not something you do have to strike you on a regular basis, but it is simply, and it usually happens when I see clouds. We have, because of the way history has gone, I think most of us just assume we're going to die the natural death of a human, and then Jesus will come back at some point in the future. And what that can have the result of doing is making Jesus's birth become something detached from our life. Um, I remember there was a season, like, it's at least two years ago, where Becca used to occasionally just exclaim, like, Jesus is as real a person as Obama was. Essentially in the sense of, he is every much as much a person as at that point, President Obama is. He is part of this concrete world. And we need to, like Christmas is part of the time we remember that that actually happened, that it isn't a fairy tale story that happened like some other plane that made a change in our life and then like everything dropped down to normal history. But it actually is something where he entered into our history. But the thing that I've, always, that I've done in practice, I think I got this as a book, is basically just occasionally looking up to the horizon and imagining what it would be for him to return. Sit there and train yourself just to occasionally. It's why I, I do it when I see clouds in the skies. It's part of the reason I like clouds. And in Los Angeles, that means it happens like twice a year. Um, but simply that impression that at some point he will come back through the clouds. That he will come back to this earth. And that it could happen right now. We have no idea when it's going to occur. But to simply sit there and I think about when I look to the horizon and then occasionally just when you're in the middle of your day, imagine what it would mean for Jesus to come back at that moment because it gives some immediacy to this life and it actually brings him into back into this world. We have to do it by imagination and in hope because that is what is going to occur. So as I said, practice is fairly simple. That one is something that I do occasionally while driving or while I'm just sitting and I think of the fact that what would it mean if Jesus was to come back right now?